0: Our text today comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. Listen now for a word from the Lord. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when Jesus had come near Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then... They brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, "'Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord.'" Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him, but they didn't find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, we thank you for the courage of our Savior. We thank you for his willingness to suffer. God, we thank you most of all for time to be inspired by his actions. Lord, I pray whatever words we would hear this morning would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have this friend who's a pastor um, in, well, he used to be a pastor in the middle of the country. And he was called to this church in the same way that a lot of us are called to these churches. And, you know, mainline churches that are dying typically want more members, right? We want... Gosh, we need more members in here. We need more programs. We want something for kids to do. Even if, you know, you don't have any kids, they want something for kids to do. And so this church, this is what they told my friend at this church in the middle of the country. And so my friend went. He, he accepted the call, and he went, and they, they started doing this really great stuff. You know, they had all these wonderful programs. And um, one of the things that he did was uh, he noticed that in this small town, you know, middle of nowhere there was nothing for kids to do after school you know and this this is a problem all across the country not just in this one particular state but he he decided to do something about it so he opened up the church and they started this after school program and the after school program included a snack and then they had tutors come in and then they got a couple computers that you know kids could use if they didn't have access and they they had all of these things going on And, and and you know the the program began to grow and expand because well, hey, when there's nothing to do and you offer something to do, <laughs> sometimes something is a better alternative than nothing, right? So kids just start showing up and they're receiving this help and they're, they're um, connecting with folks and this is exactly what the church wanted, they thought. This church also had a, a very active, I'll say, memorial committee. And this memorial committee uh, was was concerned with what all memorial committees do. I, we used to have a memorial committee here, and a lot of times memorial committees, what they'll do is they'll receive bequests from people that have passed. Um, they will uh, receive gifts from people that want to give a gift to the church, whether physical, monetary, otherwise. They'll, they'll do this and, and really help it, but this this particular memorial committee had kind of gone off the rails. My my friend tells he's he's got wild stories and you're going to think I'm making some of this up but I I I promise you these are true. Um they so they had plaques that they would set up. So someone would give a gift and they'd have a plaque and you know we've got plaques around here. Um we've got this is to Teddy Roosevelt. It's not necessarily a memorial gift but it's um it's marking where the former president sat when he worshiped here. And actually what sold Sarah and I on Fort Street, and you can ask your PNC about this, what sold us was that we came in and we saw this and no one knew where the pew was. <laughs> I, and I asked, I asked Rob Jackson, who's up in the loft there, I, I said, well, do you know where the pew is? He goes, oh, it's somewhere around here. <laughs> and and I just love that because I had heard stories about these churches that, you know, typically you would like encase that in glass, right? And you would set it aside. And I mean, Teddy Roosevelt's body touched this, and, and we need to preserve it forever. Not Fort Street. Fort Street doesn't even know where it is. But we, we, got, a, we got a plaque for it. <laughs> Thank you, Teddy. <laughs> This memorial committee, though, they, you know, they had a plaque for the organ, and, and I'm sure we have a plaque for the organ. They had a plaque on the table that you know, someone had donated, but it, it really started to get out of control. And they started you know, putting plaques on every chair that someone had donated for like the parlor room that they had set up. And, and then the tables that came, and the end tables, and they all had these, and, and they were big plaques too. That they put on them and and they would always say in loving memory of John and Jane for the glory of Christ and you know and 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 I think that's great I think it's wonderful people want to give their gifts to the church they also had uh, some ridiculous (laughs) memorial gifts that were given so someone had donated money for the defibrillator I practiced that word like 17 times last night (laughs) Sarah was laughing at me defibrillator there's an r somewhere in there that it, but they had dedicated the defibrillator, and, and so this, you know, white box that's on the wall it said, given in loving memory of John and Jane Doe for the glory of Christ and his kingdom, this defibrillator. <laughs> but then also they had uh, the uh, churches have these hearing assistance systems, you know. And they had, like, the original hearing assistance system that came out for churches that had been dedicated. And that was right next to version 2.0. And so the the outdated model is there, but you can't move it because it's been dedicated. It's been memorialized, and it's got a plaque. And so they kept it, and then when they updated, they stuck that next sound system right beside it with another plaque. And I'm assuming they'll do this for time eternal, (laughs) and it will soon become a museum to hearing assistance systems. Well, all of this kind of came to a head one day when this after-school program had so many kids that they had to push some of them into the parlor area where there were these, these tables and chairs that had been dedicated. And some of the kids, kids these days, you know, they, and, and you're not going to believe me, they sat down at the memorial table in a memorial chair, was covered in memorial cloth and there was a memorial doily all over the table and they were they had the audacity these kids to do their homework on that table can you believe that well one of the members of the memorial committee stopped by that afternoon and they saw these kids in the parlor doing their homework on the memorial table sitting with their nasty bodies in those memorial chairs ruining the parlor and everything that it stood for. And they kicked him out. (laughs) They said, you get out of here. You can't sit at this table. You can't sit at these chairs. You certainly cannot be using a writing utensil on the memorial doily that so-and-so gave all of those years ago. And they kicked him out. (laughs) They said, go somewhere else. And my friend, the way he tells it, he was like, That was that was too much for me. He said, That's when I started looking for another call because I, he just didn't have the patience. And you might argue and say he needs to have patience. He's gotta be Jesus to these people, but he he knew his limits. He was done. He couldn't work with that. He'd done everything they asked, and turns out it wasn't what they wanted. The memorial committee wasn't really concerned about the community anymore, right? And It's not really their charge, I guess. But the whole church really backed them up in this. and They're not concerned with the community and reaching people like they said they were. They're actually concerned with just keeping things preserved. Don't touch it. Don't change it. We've got to keep it the way it was so that we can remember. And nothing is Spoiled. And this is what they were passionate about. This is something they were willing to suffer for. They were willing to you know, fight the pastor on it. They were willing to rush these kids out the door. This is what they were passionate about. And my friend was passionate about reaching the community, about following a call, about trying to bring a little bit of change into the world. And so he left to follow his passions. We all have passions, don't we? If I I were to take a poll, you could tell me things that you are passionate about. We're passionate about family, about friends, we're passionate about ideas. I know a lot of us are passionate about politics because I see you on Facebook. (laughs) And you should be, you should be, That's, that's not a jab. We have a lot of things that we're passionate about. Things that we're willing to suffer for. Things that we might be willing to die for because we love them so, so much. Jesus was passionate too. You know, we're coming up to Holy Week here and we, we celebrate the passion of Christ and I think so often we're so focused on the, the fact that Jesus actually did suffer, right? And, and we only highlight those details. We don't often wonder... What is he willing to suffer for? Why is he doing this? Why is he going about this work? And so I want us to ask that question this morning. What is Jesus actually passionate about? What is he willing to suffer and die for? So before Jesus is born, something happens in Jerusalem. The Romans invade and they take over. And there's a story about General Pompey who, um, who after the, the Roman armies have conquered Jerusalem and everything's kind of settled, he, he says to his guards, he says, hey, I want to go to the temple. I want to go to the Holy of Holies. I want to meet this God that everyone says in Jerusalem lives in this temple. I'd, I'd like to have a chat with him. And so, Pompey goes up to the temple, he walks through the great oaken doors, and he steps across the court, and he comes to the veil and the Holy of Holies, and he rips back the curtain, and he steps inside. And you know what he found? Nothing. An old box. The Ark of the Covenant had some dust on it, maybe. Maybe a few utensils here and there, but he looked around... He didn't find anything interesting, and then he walked out, and on his way out he said, have them do whatever they need to do, but they can keep performing whatever rituals they practice in here. I don't care, as long as they pay their taxes. This is a huge moment, the desecration of the temple for the Jewish people at the time, and It kind of alters their psyche i think collectively i mean the the, the occupation of a of another government would would ruin them but then to have this happen even if they can keep performing the rituals i mean they're they're scared for their lives they're scared for their religion they're they're terrified and so they they begin to move i think into this mode of self-preservation and and you know rightly so and and i want to say this because I think for so, for so long, Christians have um, often demonized other religious groups at the expense of those religious groups. And so I'm, I'm not here to do that this morning. I think that those people, the religious authorities at the time, had very good reason for acting the way that they did. And I think that Jesus is simply trying to show them a bigger reality. And it is not our job this morning to posture ourselves as those who wouldn't have done those things that those other church people or religious authorities would have done. In fact, in most likelihood, we, <laughs> we would have been right there joining in on all of it, right? So I think they have good reason to do what they're doing because there's an occupying government, their temple has been desecrated, and they're losing more and more power and control and freedom in the world. And so they begin to try to protect it. And throughout the course of this, the temple becomes corrupt, if you were to ask Jesus or even John the Baptist. And so when Jesus starts his ministry, there's a real intentionality behind what he's doing to try to bring back what maybe has been lost with the temple. Jesus might say, you know, you're spending all this time trying to preserve the temple, but actually you've, you've, you've already lost it. And he's trying to bring something back. And you'll remember that Jesus' ministry starts by him going down to the river and being baptized by John the Baptist, right? And John the Baptist is uh, actually supposed to be a priest in the temple because he's the son of Zechariah, and he was uh, of that line that would inherit the temple and keep it going. But John the Baptist has seen what Jesus has seen, and he saw it maybe even before Jesus, and that is that It's not really the same, and so John has this intentional choice to say, no, I'm not going to be a priest in the temple, in the institution. I'm going out into the wilderness. I'll baptize people in the river, and Jesus has a choice at the beginning of his ministry. Do I go the way of the temple, or do I go and follow this rebel John the Baptist? And he follows John, and God blesses this, and then Jesus starts his ministry, and you know, if, if you read the Gospels, just over and over, Jesus is like running away from the authorities. He's just nearly caught by the religious authorities and they're going to get him on this charge and then take him and have him done away with. And he just always sneaks by, sneaks out of their grip. And it keeps happening over and over until now... We come to this story in Luke. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to celebrate the Passover and he's going to do the thing that everyone in that region is doing and make his pilgrimage. And he likely knows it could be his end. And he goes anyway. And so, the way Luke tells it, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, Hey, go get me a donkey. And if anyone asks why you need it, just tell them the Lord needs it. (laughs) Which Wow, what a power move, right? (laughs) Just tell them the Lord needs it. And so they do, they grab the donkey and they put Jesus on the donkey. And as he's going, according to Luke, as he's going, he's not even in the city yet. But all of these disciples that have been following him and crowding around him and waiting to hear his teaching, they begin to take off their cloaks. And they began to put them on the road ahead of him as if he's a king. And they begin shouting things like, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in highest heaven. They begin shouting all these things. And you know, there were always religious authorities kind of planted in the crowd. Because you, you got to keep eyes on someone like Jesus. You don't want him just off doing his own thing. You need to have intel on him. And so some of the folks that were planted in the crowd there from the religious authorities, they start hearing this, and they're freaking out because they're, they're approaching Jerusalem. And if if the Romans find out that this king is coming, they're going to lose their minds. And, and if they lose their minds and they find out that this Jesus, who is claiming to be king, is a part of you know, the Jewish faith and connected to the temple, well, gosh, that might mean that the temple goes away Completely. That might mean rights and privileges are stripped even more. And so the religious authorities get scared, and they go up to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, hey, tell your disciples to stop. Knock it off. Quit with this Hosanna business. Quit with this, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and Jesus has this, oh, this is a great one-liner. He says, look, if I tell them to stop, the the stones are going to shout out. And he just keeps going. The next time someone tells you to be quiet, that's a great one liner, by the way. So, well, if I be quiet, then the stones will shout out. So he keeps going and when he arrives at the gate of the city, you heard that that part in the text that we read where he stops at the city gate and and he's got all these people crowded around him and he's got the religious authorities in that crowd and and he stops and he basically curses the place before he walks in. He says, you're going to be knocked down, you're going to be scattered, you're going to go into exile and this is all because you didn't see God when God paid you a visit. And then he walks into the city, (laughs) and he goes to the temple, and right here, before the climax of Jesus' story, he walks into the temple, and we see what he is willing to suffer and die for. He goes into the temple, and he cleanses it. And there are some versions where he, he actually sits down, and he makes a whip out of cords, And there are some versions where he goes in and he flips tables and he's shouting. In this version, he just begins driving them out. And you can use your imagination on that. But he gets all of them out. He takes the money changers and he he pushes them out. And he takes the people that are selling the animals for sacrifice and he gets them out. And he takes all of them out and clears it until soon it's just him and the people that followed him and some of the religious authorities that are trying to find a way to capture him and they stop. After the dust settles, Jesus begins to teach. I'd love to know what he was teaching. I'd love to know what he was saying. But we're only told that he taught and that the religious authorities really wanted to find a way to trap him. But what can you do when everyone's hanging on every single word that he says? They were amazed by him. As Jesus is driving the people out of the temple, he says something really interesting. He says, uh, he, he quotes scripture. I think it's from Isaiah um, I'm not sure, you could look it up, but he says something like, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers. And this moment is where we get a glimpse into what Jesus is willing to suffer and sacrifice for. You know, the word sacrifice, um, we often think of animal sacrifice when we think of that, and that certainly is uh, part of the history of sacrifice, but the word sacrifice just—it comes from two Latin words: uh, one meaning holy, and the other meaning to make. And so the process of sacrifice or a sacrifice is just something that has been made holy, or it's the process by which uh, we make something holy. It's a holy making. And if you're not familiar with what holy means, because we toss that around in church a lot, and sometimes it dilutes the meaning. Holy, according to Paul Tillich, is anything that points beyond itself toward God, toward the greater good of society, toward the good of those that are around us. And he uses the opposite of that. He calls anything that's demonic is focused inwardly and focused on self-preservation, self-promotion, only concerned with its own ends even at the detriment of everyone around. Jesus has seen that the temple is not a place for sacrifice or prayer anymore. It's not a place where humans can come and connect with the divine. (laughs) It's a place where people go to make money. It's a place where people go to get ahead. Those money changers are making a profit, and it's going right in their pocket. The, the people selling sacrifices, they're making a profit off the animals they're selling. And, and maybe they should make a little bit, but I think they're probably making a little bit too much. And Jesus thinks they have to go. It's become about them, not about The rest of the world and you know the temple was established for the greater good of society it's essentially a an organization set up to redistribute the wealth of the community so that no one's too poor and no one's too rich and so that everyone can grow in the community the beloved community is fostered and continues to thrive for the glory of God but that's not happening And Jesus thinks it's worth his life to preserve that, to make sure that continues, to make sure the world does not become a place that is only about (laughs) individuals and their own needs, to make sure there's at least one place left in the world where the community, society, the world is given priority. You might have a lot of passions in your life. You have things that you're willing to suffer for, right? And I would say those are those are probably good and great. And I have things that I'm passionate about as well. But I think when we think about our passions, the things that we're willing to suffer for, one of the things that we have to really, really ask is, is this more about me and my needs and protecting myself and my comforts, or is this for the greater good? Is this for the glory of God? You might be passionate But where is that passion leading? We might think that our job, especially at this time in the church's history, (laughs) is to preserve things. To just keep going. Don't rock the boats too much. But I wonder sometimes, I wonder sometimes if we need to be more concerned with the community, the greater good, even if it means that we suffer a little bit. I'm not advocating that we go out and we, we suffer intentionally and willingly and we only suffer. I think we, as a church, did that for centuries and, you know, here we are. But I do think it is worth asking, as a church, as a community, as a society, are we more concerned with protecting ourselves and the way things we think, the way we think things should be? Are we concerned for our neighbor and loving others? You know, I was thinking about the uh, Association of Black Judges when they came to visit us, and. One of the things that I've learned about uh, people with law degrees is that they are very employable, right? They, gosh, they, they can do anything. They're so talented and they're so smart. And, and you know, this, this group of judges, one of the questions that I asked to, um, to Kiana when she was up here for the, the children's sermon was, was, you know, tell me about your calling. And she, she talked about being a judge as, as a calling and I think a lot of judges would say this. It's a calling because they could go and do anything else and make so much more money and be so much more comfortable, I guess, and, and do anything. And I was thinking about this, that this week as Kintaji um, Brown-Jackson was, was confirmed. And, and like she could go do anything else and here she is serving the greater good and the community. She doesn't have to do that. She doesn't have to go through everything that she went through to get there. But there's something that she's willing to suffer for. There's something that she believes so deeply in that she's willing to follow. And I don't think we can say that that's about her. And so friends and members of Fort Street what are you willing to suffer for what's your passion what are you willing to risk your life for let's pray good and loving God we thank you for our passions We thank you for those that serve society well and selflessly. God, I pray that you would reveal to us our own hearts and where they're situated. God, help us to answer the question, are we concerned for your kingdom and the greater good of the world, or are we just concerned with ourselves?